listening to the Mark Petrone Podcast. On the show, we have Tom Quigget on the line. Tom, of course, an intelligence expert, a man who has testified before committees, before trials, and uh, he is looking on uh, with amazement, as many of us are, as tragically, a dozen or so U.S. soldiers were just killed in Afghanistan in a series of blasts. The third one appears to have been the deadliest, Tom. What do you know about what's going on in that troubled country? Well, good afternoon, Mark, and thanks for inviting me to You're Saga welcome. 960. Uh, yes, indeed, a, a tragic day and a difficult day, but not unpredicted. Uh, as noted, it would appear around a dozen or so U.S. Marines and one Navy corpsman have been killed uh, in what appears to have been a suicide blast. Uh, there appear to have been two suicide attacks, actually, one close to the airport, one close to a hotel. Uh, and then later this afternoon, apparently there was a third blast again, although it's not clear what's happening there. Um, this was warned about. It was known about French intelligence had warned about this for a while. The British intelligence had warned about it for a while. This is most likely not the Taliban that's done this. This is ISIS Khorasan or ISIS-K, as it's sometimes referred to in the popular press. Um, it's worth noting that the Taliban itself originated in Pakistan. It's also worth noting that this branch of ISIS, ISIS Khorasan, also originated in Pakistan before moving up into Afghanistan. ISIS-K has been around for about since about 2015, perhaps. Uh, they've been responsible for about 100 different terrorist attacks uh, since then, the most deadly of which was when they blew up a, a hospital in Kabul about a year ago and killed 24, 25 people, something like that. Uh, it's worth noting that they're an Islamist group, which is to say they have the exact same ideology as the Taliban. Uh, they are Islamist. They believe in political Islam. They believe that Islam is not a religion by itself. In fact, it is a total political system which should run the government, the finance, the economy, the medical system, the education system, the arts, everything. In other words, Islam is the solution, as they say. Islam should control all aspects of your life. So the question arises, people are confused, like, why is ISIS-K doing something which runs against the Taliban, and why are they attacking each other? And the answer is ISIS-K actually looks at the Taliban and says they're weak-willed, uh, they lack the ability to use violence properly, and they need to take a harder stand against America, a harder stand against uh, what they would loosely describe as infidels and apostates, etc. So as hard as it is to believe, ISIS-K takes a harder political line and a harder line on violence than does the Taliban, and ISIS-K looks down on the Taliban because they look at them as weak. Uh, so what you're seeing is isis is expressing their will and saying, the Taliban has Americans in their sights, there's one answer to that, and you open fire. You start killing every possible moment you can. So it's worth noting that there's like Islamist groups around the world. We have Muslim Brotherhood front groups here in Canada. We have Islam, Islam, sorry, Islam, or sorry, Jama-e-Islamiya front groups here in Canada. Uh, but those front groups are aware of the fact if they use violence here in Canada now, it'll bring down the weight of authorities on them. It makes them look bad. But in other countries, uh, such as Afghanistan, Jordan, Israel, whatever, they genuinely believe that violence is the answer. Violence is the solution. Violence needs to be in their methodology every day in order to demonstrate how serious they are. So we're, what we're seeing in, in Afghanistan, actually, is a playing out of the Islamist ideology 
when there are no restrictions on it. So if people wonder, why do we worry about the Islamists? Why do we talk about Muslim Brotherhood front groups in Canada? Why do we worry about Jama'i-Islamiyah front groups in Canada? The reason is, once they get a position of power, once they get a position of influence, they will use their supremacist ideology to crush what's ever in their way. Um, for Canadians of a certain age, like perhaps you and I, we actually studied Russian history, Soviet history, and there's an analogy to be had here that when the Russian communists took over the system in 1917, not only were the Bolsheviks fighting against the government of the day, the aristocrats, they were also fighting the Mensheviks, who were their fellow communists. So we see the same thing going on in Afghanistan. You have two Islamist groups, both of which are incredibly violent, but each one has a different interpretation of how that violence should be used, so they turn on each other. Wow. So this is, okay. this is the kind of thing we're going to see more of in the future, Mark. And by the way, the death toll now, uh, 72 dead. By, I expect that that number will rise. It usually does in two separate explosions, actually three now, uh, in Kabul's uh, airport, two su suicide bombers. This is the story of the Globe and Mail, Tom. And gunmen attacked crowds of Afghans flocking to Kabul's airport, uh, transforming the scene of desperation into one of horror in the waning days of an airlift for those fleeing the Taliban takeover, at least 60, Af 60 Afghans and 12 U.S. troops were killed. Af that according to Afghan and uh, U.S. officials. So the bloodbath there is stunning and it seems to be getting worse by the hour. But if I hear you correctly, what's playing out here is almost the ISIS wing uh, exerting its influence over the Taliban. So the Taliban may not even entirely be on side with this violence because we've heard that there have been some discussions. We know even back uh, with uh, Mike Pompeo during the Trump years that there were discussions with the Taliban on various levels. And so those talks probably have been extending into the Biden administration. And ISIS seems to be coming along and saying, well, no, you guys are a bunch of wimps. We're going to show you how it's done, and they're ramping up the uh, the violence. I'm I'm not putting words in your mouth, but as as I hear this being played out, the Taliban may not entirely be in control here. Is that fair? That's not an unfair statement. I mean, it has to be made clear that the Taliban is an Islamist group. It's a supremacist group, and ultimately, its success depends upon its ability to use incredible amounts of violence very quickly, which is how they conquer territory and how they force people into submission. But it also has to be understood that the Taliban has a somewhat larger long-term strategic view of what they want to do in Afghanistan and what they want to do in the surrounding region, which is to say Pakistan, uh, Iran, uh, the Kashmir area of India, and also they're looking at moving into the Punjabi area of India. So they have a longer-term strategic view. They'll use violence. They will suppress uh, women. They will run the cruelest regime going. But it's a more intelligent use of violence, whereas ISIS has a more sort of, I almost hate to use the term blitzkrieg, but they have sort of a lightning war view of violence. So if you remember when ISIS took over large parts of the territory in Iraq and in Syria in 2014, they did it with lightning speed and they did it with phenomenal violence. Uh, ISIS, for instance, if they go into an area, they conquer an area, 
They'll kill everyone in the village, men, women, children. They don't care. Just murder everybody. And then that message gets out very quickly to the next village and the village after that and the village after that. If, the, if ISIS is coming to your neighborhood, they will just kill everyone. And it's a very effective way of conquering territory, and it's a very effective way of frightening people into submission. So, again, the, the difference between the two is the Taliban are a little more regional orientated. They want to control Afghanistan as a country. They want to build a national-level infrastructure. They want influence in Pakistan, Iran, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, uh, places like that. And they have a sort of long-term vision of where they want to go, whereas ISIS is more sort of intense, more focused, and they just want to violently extend the message everywhere as fast as they can. ISIS also believes in what we used to call propaganda of the deed, which is an old terrorism term from the 1870s, 1880s, that if you want to create a world following or if you want to create a following uh, of individuals who are going to take up your cause, the best way to do that is to demonstrate your ability to deliver violence, propaganda of the deed, as, as I say it was called. So ISIS has a, a tendency to do the most extraordinary acts of violence. If you remember when they first took over in Syria and Iraq, they put that Jordanian pilot in a cage, filled it full of gasoline, and set the guy on fire while filming it. They marched a bunch of Coptic Christians onto a beach and cut their heads off You know, in, in real-time video. Uh, that was not only to demonstrate what they're about, but it's also incredibly effective propaganda. It attracts people to the cause, and people of a certain ideology, people who follow the sort of political Islam, will be inspired by that, and they'll say, hey, look, those guys are actually out there really making a difference, and that's the team I want to join. Right, so they end up radicalizing people uh, in North America, in Canada, the United States, and elsewhere. And then, of course, on top of all this, if all that wasn't enough, Tom, and I'm going to quote a tweet from my friend uh, Joe Warmington, Major General Dean Milner, retired, who was the final Canadian commander, as you know, in Afghanistan, and who has been leading uh, the interpreter rescue mission, uh, tells the Toronto Sun that Taliban and ISIS forces are now flying Black Hawk helicopters. And so they've got all sorts of hardware now as well, Tom, that the Americans have left behind billions of dollars in hardware uh, I mean, way beyond guns. So now these people now are armed with, you know, sophisticated technology here, drones, and also waiting in the wings, of course, are the Chinese and the Russians who are also getting access to this. And in the midst of all this chaos, you've got people trying desperately to get out. You've got ISIS blowing themselves up with suicide bombers. I mean, this situation is hell on earth. I can't imagine... Uh, the, the worst place on the planet has got to be Afghanistan right now by a country mile. Yeah, I mean, when I was in places like Bosnia and Croatia, we saw the end results of, uh, of what a war looked like. Uh, your first time ever in a refugee camp is... Uh... It, it's a it's a life-changing experience to go into a refugee camp and see people who who are just utterly defeated utterly destroyed they have no idea where they are they have no idea what's happening because of the incredible violence that's been unleashed on them so it is it is a scene unfortunately that many of us who served in places like uh, bosnia and croatia or in iraq or those guys who've been in the sinai or uh, all kinds of places this unfortunately is something that's terribly familiar to us just to see this kind of uh panic i mean the people get when they start to panic they do the most incredibly stupid things uh not because they're stupid people but because they're desperate so those guys climbing on the side of the airplane as it's taking off you just look at it and go it's suicidally stupid but having seen that kind of panic having seen 
what a war looks like up close, you start to understand why people think like that. Missing from the discussions here, uh, there's another report floating around that the Taliban may have actually captured something they can really use, uh, something they can sell. And these are uh, they're a single-engine turboprop aircraft. It's called uh, Pilatus. Uh, it's quite often shows up in North America as a turboprop executive aircraft, seats maybe 12 or 14 people. But the U.S. Army version of it uh, is a intelligence-gathering asset. It's a uh, light single-engine turboprop aircraft. It carries a whole bunch of cameras and monitoring gear, and it's used for battlefield intelligence. So it can monitor communications, it can do camera work, it can do intercepts, it can do all kinds of crazy stuff like that. Phenomenally expensive aircraft. They're supposed to be around $200 million a piece, even though the aircraft itself is only worth several million dollars. But what makes it expensive is all the spy gear. And it appears that the Taliban has captured a few of these things. So they will, L, I would imagine they'll sell a couple of them uh, overseas because they're a phenomenal intelligence asset uh, and they'll be not just useful for what they can do but useful for how you can take it apart and find out what makes it work so as time goes by what we're going to discover I think is some of the high-tech stuff like the drones the intelligence collection asset the biometric gear that the US Army was using the loss of that is going to be hugely significant in the sense that technology will be bled off to other countries um, the Black Hawk helicopters, I'm not sure they're that much of an asset in the sense that flying those things is hard, maintaining them is harder, spare parts and all that stuff are hard to get for the U.S. Army, so it's going to be very hard for the Taliban. But more importantly will be things like the Humvees, which are lower tech, they're easier to maintain, and the MRAP vehicles, which are an armored vehicle, which is good against uh, mined roads and things like that. Those are going to be a huge asset to the Taliban because they're relatively low tech and they can actually operate those. Uh, for the rest of the world, um, what, what, what I think is worth sort of examining or what's worth uh, doing a critical analysis of is what will the knock-on effect be on this for ISIS in Iraq, ISIS in Syria? What will the knock-on effects be for the Islamist front groups here in Canada that are watching this and cheering it on? What sort of follow-ups are going to be when we get people like Marian Monsef, our beloved minister of women's... Uh, Minister of Women and Equity or Women and Equality, whatever she's called these days, um, when she sits out there and calls, you know, the Taliban our brothers, you know, there should be a questioning in the Canadian political system of who in Canada actually supports these guys? Why do we keep giving them millions of dollars to their various charities? And given that there's an election on right now, now would be the perfect time here in Canada to have a discussion about who are the front groups? Why are they in Canada? Why do we support this kind of Islamist activity in Canada? And is now a good time to have a discussion and start doing something about it? I don't think you'll see this happen because the Liberal Party is completely in bed with these characters. The, the Conservative Party of Canada has their own problems with these people. And the NDP, of course, has, uh, shall we say, a number of people in the party who have extremist views that don't want these discussions. So even though now is an election, now would be the good time to talk about this stuff. I don't think we're going to see it in Canada, and that's truly unfortunate. It is unfortunate because, of course, as you mentioned, we're in the midst of a uh, an election campaign, and uh, the media doesn't seem overly keen about talking to Justin Trudeau about it. I mean, I, if it was a conservative a prime minister here, I think they would be shredding that individual on a day-to-day -day basis on this debacle in Afghanistan. It's not happening. And we can only surmise that this is largely due to the kind of ongoing bias that we see in the media these days. But uh, I have to ask you about what the Biden administration was thinking going into this. I mean, we look at this situation, Tom, and you, sh you have to shake your head.
It's like these people wanted to, there to be chaos. It's almost like they wanted there to be people dying. It's like they wanted to be terror and disaster and all this stuff. I don't think how how could you have planned this any worse than it was? What the hell was this president thinking? <laughs> okay, a hundred different questions there. Uh, let me fall, <laughs> let me fall let me fall back Pick to one. My, yeah. Let me fall back to my immediate response in these things. Never assume malice when stupidity will explain the situation. I think you've got a situation Biden wants out of Afghanistan, and he has uh, ever since he was vice president with uh, President Obama. Oh, Biden was highly critical of the role in Vietnam. It's very clear he wants out. Unfortunately, I think what you see through the American political system over the last eight to 10 years, but just violently so in the last six months, has been uh, the U.S. military is actually focused on white rage within the ranks. They're worried about white supremacy in the military. Uh, the U.S. military and uh, its uh, reserve system was able to find 25,000 troops to send to Washington, D.C., defend the Capitol against a mythical insurrection, which the FBI said never actually existed. But they couldn't find 20,000 troops to send to Afghanistan to control the withdrawal. I think if you want to look at the degree to which normal planning failed utterly, the, the one single example I think that serves the best is Bagram Airfield. That was the major airfield for the U.S. Air Force and for the rest of their military. It had a fighting capability, it had a cargo capability, it had a command and control capability, and they closed that airport first and left the, the resources trying to run out of Kabul. If you look at Kabul, even if you just look on like Google Maps and look at the imageries there, you can see it's in the middle of a city. It's a lot like Toronto's Pearson Airport and that it's surrounded on all sides by dense population. It is the absolute worst nightmare of a place to try and run any kind of uh, opposed operations because anybody can close the airfield, anybody can control the approaches to the airfield. Bagram at least was in a semi-rural area. Okay, it still had built-up area around it, but nothing like Kabul. So who in the military in the United States chose to close Bagram before they chose to close Kabul needs to be, you know, pulled out and slapped around violently in public and try and explain what they really thought they were doing. But my suspicions are the very senior planners in the State Department, the very senior planners in the Pentagon were focused on things like diversity, inclusion, and equity lectures for the troops rather than are we successfully capable of doing a withdrawal? And anybody that's done an intelligence course in the military will tell you that planning intelligence for an offensive operation is difficult. Planning intelligence for a defensive operation is harder, and doing intelligence work for a withdrawal or a retreat is amongst the hardest things going. So they knew they were leaving. They knew they were going to cut and run. It should have been a controlled retreat. It's possible. It can be done. The U.S. military has the assets and resources, but they weren't willing to put the people in there, take the risk to do it. So there you go. Just, just by way of explanation for the viewing audience, about three weeks before this all fell apart, the U.S. Congress released a report. And they started a question about two years ago about the effectiveness of the U.S. Navy, because the U.S. Navy had a couple of collisions at sea. They had a, a destroyer or frigate run into a cargo vessel. They had another vessel catch on fire, and it took two days to put the fire out. So a bunch of Congress people asked a question. They said, what the heck is going on inside the U.S. Navy? Is there something going on that we're losing our ship handling skills and losing our ability to fight the ship in order to use the ship as a fighting instrument? 
The report just came out, I think it was in late July or early August, and what it said was the con congressional investigation determined that all of the lectures that on diversity, inclusion, and equity were up to date. Every unit in the U.S. Navy was completely up to speed on equity, on uh, gay pride, on diversity, on inclusion, and all this stuff right down to the lowest unit on the lowest ship. Everybody's training was up to date. And they said ship handling skills and fighting the ship skills, on the other hand, have actually gone down and that the commanders running the ships and running the squadrons and running the fleets aren't putting a focus on actual ship handling skills and fighting skills because it's more important to have your diversity lectures up to date than it is to have your firefighting skills up to date. So that kind of moral rot, and that's about what it can be called, has been going through the U.S. military since Obama was in power. It was kind of a little bit pushed back under Trump, but even Trump never really took a hard run at that kind of rot. But that kind of rot has gone right through the U.S. military for the last it's hard to say, 10 or 12 years, but it's now apparent that a number of major accidents which are occurring in the U.S. military are because there is an over-focus on things like determining if there is white rage in your unit rather than looking at your unit and saying, could this thing win a war if it had to? So that's a, that's a key issue, and I think one of the things that's missing in this entire discussion about the Afghan mess and how we deal with the future is we need to go back to a bit of foreign policy, a bit of domestic policy, a bit of intelligence policy that's driven by clear thinking, by threats, by analysis, and by reaction, rather than determining if the people we have doing the jobs have checked off the right uh, politically correct boxes. Tom, before I let you go, I've, I've got to ask you um, about the Chinese now being in there. Obviously, they're interested in the rare earth uh, minerals. Um, all these minerals that are key towards green energy and solar power. And Afghanistan is supposed to have uh, among the richest sources of that. But they're not stupid. They know that if ISIS is in there, that they're going to be attacked, that the Chinese are going to be blown up, that uh, their ability to exploit these resources is also going to come under attack by these terror groups. Uh, what's going through their minds, do you think, right now, as the situation continues to unfold? I think the first thing that probably goes through their minds is they must wake up in the morning and shake their heads and say, surely this couldn't be happening. It can't be working out this well for us uh, to watch the American presence in Afghanistan result, not just in them leaving, but in an utter, total, chaotic collapse, which completely undermines uh, the allies of America throughout the entire region. The other thing, as you mentioned, is it's an interesting dynamic to watch the difference between countries such as Pakistan, which are, their government is almost an Islamist government. It is that far into, uh, into that sort of problem set. Uh, that Pakistan takes money from China. Pakistan's major port is run by the Chinese. In fact, it's now owned by the Chinese, including the territory around it. But yet at the same time, the Chinese are carrying out a genocide, bluntly put, against the Uyghurs, who are a uh, ethnic Turk, but nonetheless uh, Muslims living in China. They are on the receiving end of a genocidal program. And Pakistan keeps their mouth shut. Pakistan is always going on about how Muslims are victimized in Canada and America and all this stuff. They're always on our case for Islamophobia. But yet they are dealing with a country which is committing genocide against their, their fellow Muslims. So 
I think the Taliban, you could probably put them in the same sort of basket that uh, they will rant and rave uh, about, you know, Islamophobia and they'll rant and rave about how Islam is powerful and how it should run the country. But at the same time, they'll be willing to strike a dirty deal with whoever in order to get money, in order to get funding, in order to get access. And that will include the Chinese. As you point out, the wild card in all of this is ISIS because they do not have a tightly driven geographic agenda. The Taliban is tied to its territory. They're Pashtun. They believe in Pashtun territory. They believe in Afghanistan, eastern Iran, Pakistan, that sort of thing. That's where, that's where their home is. That's where they have to live. Whereas ISIS's ideology has no geographic fixture. And I think this will, this will be a problem for ISIS as well, is how do they deal with their co-religionists, if you will? How do they deal with people who have a similar belief system, but a different application of violence. And yeah, the tension's going to build up between them. One of the things that's not being discussed uh, openly is it's going to be interesting for those of us who, who watch the development of political Islam to watch the Taliban. Governing is hard. Taking over a country and running it is hard. The, Pakistan, uh, the Taliban will do whatever they did last time, which is ban theaters, ban music, ban women, ban education, ban everything. That's easy to do. Banning stuff, killing people, and submitting, forcing people into submission is relatively easy. It's harder to get the water to go through the pipes. It's harder to pick up the garbage. It's harder to run an airport. Running an airport is an amazing skill, which is incredibly hard to do, which is why they're trying to get Turkey to help them run Kabul Airport. So the Taliban are going to be facing an amazing uphill battle over the next year. Once they get done celebrating for the first couple of months about how great they are and how they've taken over Afghanistan, they're going to be facing a cold winter, hunger, starvation, and they're going to start having to deal with that. The wild card, ISIS. Uh, and as you so correctly point out, ISIS won't care how much people suffer because they don't care about the government. They care only about the ideology and the application of violence and how they can use that application of violence to increase their profile worldwide. A lot of people kind of missed it, but when ISIS was thumped badly uh, in what we in Syria and Iraq and those areas, uh, their troops and their people were sort of decimated and spread out across uh, large numbers there, including Canada. And as we should not forget that Trudeau actually welcomed them back here, uh, about a hundred of them. But where the center of their mass went was partly to Afghanistan and partly to parts of Africa, like Mozambique, Somalia, places like that. And where they've seen the greatest resurgence, where they've seen the greatest ability to recruit and demonstrate their will, has been in Afghanistan. With events today, we see that ISIS is going to be... Uh, they've just handed themselves an excellent propaganda victory to show that they were capable of striking in America, even if the Taliban couldn't. Yeah. Wow. Uh, just such a quagmire. But Tom... Thank you so much for coming on the show and making sense out of the madness. Really appreciate this. Cheers. Thanks, Mark. Intelligence expert, Tom Quiggin. He's also an author, published author as well. You've been listening to the Mark Petronic Podcast. 